Welcome to uh, everyone uh, to tonight's uh, event. My name is uh, Eric uh, Neumeyer. I'm the head of the Geography and Environment Department, and it's a great pleasure to uh, welcome you to the event tonight, which is uh, co-hosted by the LSE Student Union Economic Society at the LSE's Geography and Environment uh, Department. Um, we have uh, two speakers uh, tonight, uh, Professor Bjorn Lomborg, who will speak for about 45 minutes. Uh, we have uh, uh, a second speaker respondent, if you like, Dimitri Sengelis, who will speak for about 10 to 15 minutes. So we will have roughly, I would think, 25 minutes time for a question and answer session, um, which is uh, what we all like uh, to have. Um, the event will be recorded and will most likely be made available as a podcast as well. Now, uh, I, sh I keep my introduction of two speakers uh, extremely short in the interest of time. Bjorn Lomborg doesn't need much uh, introduction. He is uh, perhaps best known for two things. One, his book, uh, The Skeptical Environmentalist, and the um, second thing, perhaps, for his um, Copenhagen um, Consensus Center, which uh, I'm not sure every year, but uh, biannually, every four years, uh, brings together a group of uh, top economists, amongst them Nobel laureates, to discuss such minor matters as you know where to spend billions, uh, uh, billions of year, uh, dollars or pounds, if you like, uh, on. Uh, on things like uh, education, malnutrition, free trade, lessons, uh, climate change, uh, one of them. Uh, uh, Dimitri is a senior visiting fellow at uh, the LSE's Grantham Research Institute and an associate fellow at the Chatham House. He's also a senior economic advisor to Chisco's long-term innovation group. He was with the Stern. He actually headed the Stern Review team at the Office of Climate Change. Uh, and uh, before working on climate change, he was with the head of economic forecasting at HM uh, Treasury. So it's a great pleasure to have two experts uh, on climate change. And with no further ado, thank you very much for coming and welcome. <laughs> Please thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And again, since we have. Um, limited time. I'm just going to launch right into it. And uh, what I would like to talk about is really how we, I think, we should try to address global warming. Uh, and this is really a question of saying we have lots of different understandings of it, and certainly it's a matter that's greatly discussed, but I think we have very little sense of what are the right questions to ask, really. So I would like to at least give some of my views on how we might be able to do that. But before I do, I think perhaps it's worthwhile to say, what is it that we're trying to achieve? Because we have this tendency to just talk about, oh, global warming, big problem, we should do something about it. But let's just remember, what is it that we actually wanted to do? Well, presumably what we wanted was to make a better world. And so let's make sure we do stuff that actually works, and not just stuff that makes us feel good. I think this is important because a lot in the climate debate has this tendency of just simply being about us feeling like we've really managed to do something. So rational uh, rather than fashionable. I think we also need to remove myths. There's lots of myths 
in the climate area. Remember, most of these things that I'm going to mention for climate is also true in other areas, but I think they're particularly true in climate simply because they have large amount of attention and they have lots and lots of big consequences for how we prioritize and structure society. So there's lots of great stories that get our attention. But if many of them are wrong or incorrect or at least misleading, we probably make poor decisions. And that's important because at the end of the day, we only have limited funds. If we spend much money on one area, it means that money can't be spent on other areas. And if our goal was to make a better world, we've got to ask ourselves, where do we spend that money to do the most good? Not just say, hey, at least we did some good. I would like to be able to say to my, uh, uh, my future generations that we have done the best we possibly could. So with that, really, the question is, how should we tackle global warming? Uh, no lecture is complete without a picture of Al Gore, so I figured I'd better, on global warming at least, um, so I figured I'd better show it here. Al Gore and I gave a presentation to Congress uh, a couple of years ago. Um, this is the second before he realizes who I am. Um, <laughs> but, but, but he's smiling, right? But the point is, of course, both Gore and many, many others want to do good in climate change. This is not a discussion about, you know, are people bad people or do they have bad motivations? I fundamentally think most people want to get it right in global warming. So this is much more a question of saying, are we making the right choices? Are we actually making policies that will work? And I'd like to make four simple points. You know, again, if we're going to make this a conversation that is easily understandable, it just doesn't work to say, let's all read the three IPCC reports, you know, the three times 800 pages, and let's also just read all the other stuff that's been written about this. If we want a democratic debate, we somehow need to be able to summarize this in to fairly simple points. I'm going to try to make four points. It doesn't mean that I don't have more to back it up, because otherwise I'd also be done. Uh, but really, it's about saying, how can we structure the conversation in global warming more easily? The first one is, global warming is real. It's man-made. It is an important problem. It is a problem we need to fix. So let's just start off to make sure this is not a discussion about, oh, global warming is not happening, or it's the end of the world. This is an issue that we need to tackle. And I actually think we should thank Al Gore for having put it on the agenda, especially in the US, but also in general. This is an issue we need to consider. I would argue that our best information comes from the UN Climate Panel, the IPC. This doesn't mean that there hasn't been problems, as, as many of you probably also have heard. But you know, we don't have any international uh, organization where there's not some problems. This is simply the best information we have. So again, we should be taking our cue from the IPCC. They'll tell us pretty much what's up and down on climate and what's going to happen over the next hundred years. The likely temperature rise the UN Climate Panel tells us from the main scenarios is about 2.6 degrees. That's the median of the scenarios. It's somewhere between 1.6 and 3.8 degrees centigrade from today's temperatures. This doesn't sound like very much, but because it's an average, it is a significant impact on the planet. So it is an important problem. It's not the end of the world, but it is an important problem. And of course, I think economics can help us here by bringing us our attention to saying, what's the total cost of this? What's the total impact of global warming? Well, if we try to look at some of the recent models run, the average of the uh, estimate is in the order of $15 trillion. Remember, they're both good things and bad things that are going to happen from global warming. Overwhelmingly, there'll be more bad things than good things. That's why it's a problem. 
But we need to take all of these into account, and that's what we do if we try to make a social welfare estimate of what's the da damage cost of global warming, about $15 trillion. That's a large number. That you know, used to be larger before the financial crisis, but, but still it's something that we ought to make us you know, sit up straight in our chairs and think about how do we tackle this in the best possible way. On the other hand, it's perhaps also important to recognize in the net worth of the 21st century, which is on the UN climate uh, panel data on uh, the uh, amount of about 3,000 billion, sorry, 3 uh, million billion dollars. Uh, it's about half a percentage point, right? So let's just remember, global warming is a problem. It is not zero, the impact, but it's not 100% either. And I think both points are imp incredibly important because we've been stuck in this conversation of global warming is not happening at all or it's the end of the world. I think we need to find the smart middle ground of saying it's a problem, like many other problems we need to fix in this century. And then we need to ask ourselves, instead of panicking, start talking about how do we smartly and actually solve this problem. So global warming is real, it's man-made, it is an important problem, we need to fix it, it's not the end of the world, but we should try and fix it smartly. We don't. And that's, I think, predominantly because we're scared about many of the stories that we hear about global warming. And I think it's instructive for two different reasons, partly because unless we stop the scare, we're not likely to be able to think smartly, but it's also one of the places where economics can give us a great in intuition on how we actually help real people with real problems. So let me just take a look at this. Uh, the, the, the argument here is to say many of the things that we hear about global warming have a tendency to be very one-sided and or very dramatized and exaggerated. That's unhelpful because it's unlikely to lead to good, rational, sensible judgment. You know, if we're panicked, we don't make sensible decisions. If you have a gun to your head, you don't make smart decisions. Well, you make smart decisions given you have the gun, but it's probably unlikely if it really wasn't a loaded gun. So how do we look at this? Well, again, I'm going to pull on, on Gore simply because he's, he's in many ways been the most visible figure on this. This is one of the things that Gore said, but yeah, you read this pretty much in the, in the papers every day. The, he calls it a planetary emergency. He tells us we have just 10 years uh, to avert a major catastrophe that could send our entire planet into a tailspin of epic destruction involving extreme weather, floods, droughts, epidemics, and killer heat waves beyond anything we've ever experienced. That kind of thing certainly sounds like something you want to avoid. Um, and, and the real point here is to say it's not technically misleading. Sorry, it's not technically untrue, but it certainly is misleading. And I'd like to take you through a few of these. I'm, again, I'm sure we can spend a lot more time and questions on talking in some of these areas. But really what I want to show you is both how we're being presented with a very one-sided argument or exaggerated argument, and also how we're being misled to believe that the best way to help people from these problems is to help them by cutting carbon emissions. And that leads, of course, later on to what kind of policies we should be doing. So I'd just like to take a look at heat deaths. He says we're going to see more uh, uh, heat waves. Uh, take a look at sea level rise. He says we're going to see more flooding uh, on hurricanes. We're going to see more extreme weather. And we're going to see more uh, uh, epidemics. Well, let's take a look at malaria. These are some of the things where we can have a look and see what does the data actually tell us and get a sense of what's up and down in this discussion. Well, take a look at heat waves. Are we going to see more heat waves with global warming? Absolutely. I mean, it's not very hard. If temperatures rise, 
we're going to see more places they'll have more heat waves and hence more people are going to die from heat. We actually have some of the best estimates from from uh, the UK and around from Europe uh, by a, a cross-national uh, study done by about 50 researchers in Europe, across Europe, and they estimated that by 2050, because of global warming in the UK, you're going to see about 2,000 more people die from climate change because of heat waves every year. We should definitely be honest and say that that's a big problem. That's something we need to tackle. The problem I have with this argument is, of course, as temperatures rise, we're going to see more heat waves and hence more people dying from heat. But as temperatures rise, we're also going to see fewer cold waves and hence fewer people dying from cold. Shouldn't we say that too? Now, of course, it may be that that's a trivial number, but it's not. Because the same people who analyze this, the 2,000 extra people dying from heat waves in mid-century because of global warming, also showed what's actually going to happen from increasing temperatures in Britain because of global warming on the amount and intensity of cold waves. It turns out that that means in the UK we'll have about 20,000 fewer cold deaths. We're not well informed if we're being told 2,000 more people are going to die, which is true. But we f conveniently fail to uh, tell ourselves that 20,000 fewer people are going to die. Now, of course, you might say, yeah, that's for Britain. Maybe it's not surprising the guy's from Denmark. Of course, he likes more, you know, a, a little hotter weather. And that's probably true. Overall, it's, global warming is probably going to be much more advantageous for Denmark and for Canada and for Russia than for, for instance, many developing countries that lie closer to the equator where this is unequivocally going to be a problem. But if we look at all the net impacts of uh, heat and cold deaths, the estimate is actually, we're estimating about 400,000 more heat deaths, but about 1.8 million fewer cold deaths because of global warming. We need to tell people this. This does not mean that we're saying, hey, maybe global warming is cool, maybe we should have more of it. That's not the point that I'm making. I'm simply saying, overall, we're going to have more problems and benefits from global warming. That's why it's a problem. That's why we need to fix it. But only telling us one part of the story is unlikely to make for good discussion and, and, uh, and material to base our decisions on. But not only that, the second problem I have with this kind of argument is to say the implication is because we're going to see more people dying from heat waves, the right way to help people is to cut carbon emissions. But the real issue is, no, is that really the best way to help people? Do you remember the big uh, European uh, 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 heat wave in, in August 2003? We still talk about it. About 35,000 people died across the, uh, uh, the European continent. It could very well be because of global warming. So people would say, because of that, uh, yeah, 7,500 uh, mainly old women died in Paris uh, uh, alone, simply because they were left in their apartments, no water, no uh, real care. And to honor their memory, we need to cut carbon emissions so that doesn't happen in the future. Let's just think about that argument. Even if we buy into all of the arguments of saying, this is due to global warming, and if we cut carbon emissions, we're going to have slightly less of this in the, in the future. Let's just think about it. Temperatures are going to rise because we'll keep on putting more and more CO2 out, but what we're talking about is cutting carbon emissions so temperatures will rise slightly less. So what we're essentially saying is, yeah, more and more old people in Paris, France are going to die from heat waves, but we are going to make it our political project by the end of the century that slightly less, many, many more are going to die from heat waves. Is that really the best we can do? And the simple answer is no. There are many other ways that we could deal with heat waves that would be much cheaper and much more effective. Virtually nobody dies in the US from heat waves anymore. Why? Because of air conditioning. If we don't want people to die from heat waves, 
Don't try to cut carbon emissions so that it's slightly less, much more warm in 100 years. Give them air conditioning. Now, you may disagree with that we should do that because it will obviously mean that we end up emitting more CO2, certainly as long as we power it with fossil fuels. But then we should stop saying this is because we want to help old people in Paris, France. Then we should be honest and say then it's about a totally different thing. I'm simply pointing out the way that we are arguing, saying we should do something to help these old women not die in heat waves. Well, then they're much more effective ways. Of course, air conditioning is just the most blatant one. But there's also very simple passive uh, ways that would also not emit more CO2. Namely, the fact that most people are living in cities already today. We estimate between 70 and 90% are going to be living in cities by the end of the century. So the vast majority of humanity is going to live in cities. That's important because cities are much warmer than their surrounding countryside, basically because there's very little water, greenery, and lots of black surfaces, essentially asphalt. So if we want to have a cooler future, why don't we talk about making cities cooler, where most people live? And it would be much cheaper, much more effective. We know this, again, from London, but we have these studies from many, many different places. If we, for instance, added more water and greenery to London, apart from the fact that it would be a much more beautiful city, we could actually reduce heat wave temperatures in London by about 8 degrees, much more than global warming would ever warm up London. Why aren't we talking about that? Simple and very much cheaper and much more effective strategies that we could do much sooner. And of course, if asphalt is the problem, if lots of black surfaces are the problem, why don't we stop having so many black surfaces? Paint the tarmac in light colors or paint the rooftops. Simple things we know will work. We've done this for you know, simulations for New York, for Los Angeles, for Tokyo, and for London. And again, it shows that we'll see a reduction in heat wave temperatures about 10 degrees. So my point is double here. We're being told more heat waves, which is true, but we're conveniently being forgotten to tell that they'll actually uh, uh, will avoid even more deaths from uh, less cold waves. But also, we're being told you should help those people that die from heat waves in the least effective most costly way. But if we really want to help them, why aren't we focusing on the things that would actually solve this problem? This is, in my understanding, really a way that economics and the way of looking at smart solutions can be, although it's a very, very cool and rational analysis and somehow feels a little you know, uh, 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 bean counter-like, can actually be an incredibly uh, uh, human exercise because we actually care about making lots of good rather than just a little good. And this is true for the other examples that I want to show you. I want to just briefly uh, take you through this because we hear so much about sea levels rise. Yes, sea levels are going to rise. The UN climate panel estimate that it's going to rise somewhere between 18 and 59 centimeters over the century, about 30 centimeters in the median estimate. That's a problem. But it's not the Al Gore six meters that, I don't know if you saw the film where he shows how uh, you know, six meters sea level rise is going to eradicate Florida and San Francisco Bay Area and New York and Holland and, and Bangladesh and Shanghai and, and Beijing. I mean, it's very visually stunning. But of course, if that's not actually the case, what does that accept for scaring the pants off of people? The point here is sea level rise of 30 centimeters is a problem. But it's not a problem we haven't dealt with before. We actually know how much of a problem about 30 centimeters is. Why? Because of the last 150 years, sea levels rose about 30 centimeters. Yet, did anyone notice? 
Imagine asking a very old person who lived through most of the 20th century, likely to be a woman, and ask her, what were the important things that happened in the 20th century? She'll talk about the world wars, the suffrage for women, maybe the IT revolution, but she will probably not say, and sea levels rose. Right? It underscores the fact that sea levels rising, certainly at this rate, is not a tremendous challenge. It's actually something that we handled very well, despite being much poorer in the last century and a half. It will accelerate. That's what global warming does for us. But it's not out of hand. So again, how much is this? Well, if we take a look at the uh, economic analysis, a lot of people, for instance, uh, mention the Maldives, apart from the fact that it's a very beautiful place to go. Um, it's also very iconic. We worry about the Maldives. Take a look at what would happen with 30 centimeters to the Maldives. It turns out that if you just look at the ISO curves that essentially raise the level 30 centimeters, you will flood about 77% of the Maldives at a cost total, uh, uh, discounted back till today, of about 121%. That's a bad thing. But of course, it also assumes that the Maldives are going to do nothing the next 90 years, that they're essentially going to be standing on the beach, watching how the waves start lapping up over their knees and essentially drown. Uh, and that's probably unlikely that they would do that. We actually know that people adapt, and they can do so fairly cheaply. Our models, again, indicate that for about 0.04% of GDP, the Maldives could basically safeguard virtually all of their dry land. Will they do that? Will they spend 0.04% of their GDP to avoid a loss of 121% of their GDP? Yeah. Which is, of course, the whole point of this argument that we need to remember that we have dealt with these things and we can deal with them fairly cheaply, less than 0.05% probably from most uh, uh, places around the world. This is not to say that it's not a problem. This is not to say that we don't have to fix it. But it's to say, is the right way to help the Maldives to cut carbon emissions so that they're going to see less uh, uh, sea level rise? Well, actually, we have a very good test case. If we take a look at the two main scenarios in the UN climate panel, the A1 and the B1 scenario, it's essentially, if you will, the George Bush scenario. We don't care about the environment. We're just going to run out and get as rich as we possibly can. And the B1 scenario, the Al Gore scenario, the scenario where we care a lot more about the world. We're still smart about it, and we still try to get rich, but we recognize that we need to also suffer, or, or at least give up some growth, in order to have a better environment. These two scenarios, both of them envision we're going to be much richer by the end of the century. In the A1 scenario, the average person in the world will be at about $72,000 per person per year. That's you know, twice what the US is today. So we'll be much, much richer. So it's a much better world. But we'll also have to deal with about 32 centimeters of sea level rise. In the Al Gore scenario, we'll still be much richer. We'll be about $51,000. So we'll still be about one-third less than what we'd get in the George Bush scenario. But we'll also have about one-third less sea level rise to contend with. We'll only have about 22 centimeters of sea level rise. Now, the simple question is, which of these two worlds would be best for the Maldives? If we only look at sea level rise, of course it will be better for them in all other ways that they're richer, simply because they'll be better able to deal with their kids' health and everything else. But let's just look at that one measure, sea level rise. Where will they lose the most dry land? In the George Bush scenario or in the Al Gore scenario? We would imagine that it would be in the Al Gore scenario because they'll have less sea level rise to contend with. But what we forget is they'll also have less money to deal with it. 
it actually turns out that if you run the model, they'll lose three times more dry land in the Al Gore scenario. So out of our goodness of our hearts, if we end up making the world less rich than it could otherwise have been, but have less sea level rise, we can actually be in a situation where they will have more loss of dry land. Now remember, it's going to be very little no matter what, simply because it's very, very cheap to attack. But the main point here is again to say, let's be cool about how we analyze this and not just go with what sounds nice. Hurricanes. We hear that again. Of course, we've just heard this from uh, now with Australia. I'm going to Australia next week, and you know, they're very upset about the fact that they've suddenly been hit by a hurricane. So we constantly get this. But of course, Hurricane Katrina, in many ways, set the agenda for uh, uh, most Americans that global warming is really happening, and it's terrible. If you look at this, this is the impact on, on the US uh, from hurricanes. This is damage cost uh, over the last century until 2009, yeah, I believe. Uh, this is uh, 2004 and this is 2005. Katrina was about $80 uh, billion of that, but there were several other hurricanes. This used to be the biggest hurricane in the US history. As you can see, it's totally been dwarfed, uh, Hurricane Andrew in 1992. So basically, you see a very, very clear Al Gore sort of scenario. Things are just getting worse and worse and out of hand, and the damage costs are going to keep increasing. That's entirely true. But it has very little to do with global warming. It has everything to do with the fact that people get much richer and that they live much closer to harm's way and there are many more people. So obviously when hurricanes hit, a lot more damage is going to happen. Fundamentally, where hurricanes hit is really, really nice to live when hurricanes don't hit, which is why everybody tries to live there. The two counties in Florida, Dade and Broward, I don't know if you remember, those are the counties where, where Al Gore and uh, George Bush were battling the hanging chads uh, in, uh, in, their, in the 2000 election. Those two counties today have more citizens than there was in the entire Caribbean and Atlantic coast in 1930. So obviously, while the U.S. is quadruple in population, the coastal population of the U.S. has increased 50-fold. So lots more people, lots more money. That's essentially what we see if we take a look at this graph. This is uh, 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 Miami in 1926. Is it fairly obvious that if a hurricane hits here? It's, you know, some people will have to move the deck chairs, but it's not going to have that much of an impact. On the other hand, this is the same place in 2006. Is it obvious that if a hurricane hits, we're going to see dramatically higher costs? That's why a number of researchers then said, well, let's try and take a look at this curve, but then adjust it to how many people and how much wealth are in the individual areas where hurricanes hit. And then let's try to renormalize it, say, how would this graph look if all the hurricanes that hit the US over the last 109 years had hit the US as it looks today? This is what the graph would have looked like, a very different outcome. The actually most damaging hurricane would have been the Great Miami Hurricane of 1926. It tore right through downtown Miami. But of course, as you saw on the, on the picture, there's not that much to damage back then. Whereas today, had it hit Miami, it would have cost more than Hurricane Katrina, anything else. It was still back then, when there were many, many fewer people living, the second largest uh, uh, death of, uh, from hurricanes, and it was uh, much more than Hurricane Katrina. The second largest was actually the Great Galveston in 1900. Uh, it's also the biggest killer in the US. It killed about 8,000 people, or about uh, uh, five times as many as Hurricane Katrina. And Hurricane Katrina was only the third largest. There's some other hurricanes, which is why it's the second largest here. So the fundamental point here is, again, it's not because of global warming. Now, global warming probably adds a little signal, but this has 
mainly something to do with the fact that we have much more resources and many more people. So again, why is it we're so focused on saying this has to, uh, we have to cut carbon emissions? But let's take a look at this. If we take the reasonably worst case scenario that we are going to see more damaging hurricanes because of global warming, we're estimating that by mid-century, the climate damage impact will increase about 10%. But if we look at the social factors, more money and more people closer to harm's way is probably going to increase the damage cost about five times or 500%. Why is it we're so focused on doing something about this and so little focused on this? That's really the question again. And so the surprising thing is if we manage, for instance, to do the Kyoto Protocol for everyone, which of course we haven't, we would be able to cut about half a percentage point of this graph. Whereas if we did simple policy uh, stuff, we could probably cut this somewhere between 250 uh, and 400 percent. We could probably even make this negative. Yet most of us don't know how to do that. But it's very simple things like stop subsidizing insurance, which they do in Florida and many other places. Politically convenient, but of course it, it encourages people to build irresponsibly. Have better building codes, have better enforcement of building codes, have places where people can't stay. Have simple things like claps on, on, on your roofs. There's a lot of different ways that we can very, very significantly reduce the impact. Again, my point is simply to say if we actually care about people, why is it we're so focused on, focus, on, on dealing with the least effective but the most costly way to help them first? The last bit I just want to give you is the idea that we're going to see more malaria, or in general that we're going to see more uh, 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 epidemics. It's one of the things that we hear a lot of times. But again, let's get a sense of how much is that actually going to happen. Well, Malaria is probably weakly correlated to heat. We expect that because of increased warming, the endem uh, endemicity, you can't say that, the, uh, the malaria mosquito will be endemic in more places simply because it will live better in more places. Uh, we estimate from some of the past models that by the end of the century, because of global warming, we'll probably have about 3% more malaria. But of course, remember, malaria is strongly correlated to wealth. If you're rich, you don't get malaria. And even if you get malaria, you don't die from malaria. But if you're poor, you get malaria. About 2 billion people get malaria each year. And you die from malaria. And so again, why is it we focus so much on cutting carbon and so little on dealing with malaria? The real issue here is to say, if we care about the 3% more malaria in 100 years, why is it we don't care about the 100% malaria that's here right now that we could help so much better right out of the box. To give you a sense of proportion, we can actually run this. Oh, and I'm not sure why that happened. But um, I wanted this to come up so it was more dramatic, but it didn't, apparently. Uh, so now nah, I've given the whole thing away. Anyway, Kyoto, if we managed to do Kyoto, we would save about 1,400 lives every year. If we actually managed to do it, we haven't, but if we did, we'd save about 1,400 lives from malaria every year throughout the century. That's nice. But isn't it amazing we don't talk about the fact that for every, uh, with very simple malaria policies, we could save 850,000 people from malaria. And remember, the cost of Kyoto is about 60 times more than the cost of malaria-specific policies. So if you want to put it very bluntly, for every time Al Gore and many other well-meaning people in this world will spend money through climate change policies, even if they spend it well, to cut carbon emissions so much that they will save one person from dying from malaria the same amount of money could have saved, if we'd spent on malaria policies, 36,000 people. Isn't it better to save 36,000 people than one? That's the real crux. 
And that's why I'd like to take you through this. Yes, global warming is real, it's man-made, it is an important problem, we need to tackle it. But the way that we're being told that we're going to see much more flooding, we need to cut carbon emissions, we're going to see more heat waves, we've got to cut carbon emissions, we're going to see more extreme weather, we've got to cut carbon emissions, we're going to see more malaria, we've got to cut carbon emissions, is an incredibly ineffective way to help the future. If what we want is to leave this world a better place, why on earth is it we are not talking about how we could help these people really? By making cooler cities, by making richer societies that would be more resilient and basically able, for instance, like the Maldives, to tackle the problems that they're going to get from uh, rising sea levels. Or by focusing on making communities more resilient in Florida and many other places so they can tackle uh, 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 hurricanes that they are seeing today, not just in the future. And of course, for people dying from malaria. This does not mean that we shouldn't tackle global warming. We're not a civilization where we say, all right, now we focus on malaria, so I'm sorry, we can't really have in our head also to deal with global warming. But it means that we can start asking the simple question and say, where can we do a lot of good for climate change rather than just a little bit? And the problem here is that the current batch of solutions are simply sad, to put it mildly. Right? The current way to solve the problem seems to be sort of along the lines of saying, we should do Kyoto. We should promise large carbon cuts. The problem is we don't. We, no, sorry, we do promise them, we just don't actually do them. And of course, the real reason is because it's pretty expensive. And yet, do you, you remember probably in 2009, in my hometown, uh, we were supposed to have the treaty that would save the world in Copenhagen. Of course, nothing actually happened and the whole thing broke down. But yet, everybody met up in Cancun not saying, hmm, now we've been trying this for 19 years. It hasn't worked ever since 1992 in Rio. We've been trying the same formula, and it hasn't worked and failed catastrophically in Copenhagen uh, last year. So let's meet in Cancun and try something else. No, instead they said, so let's try again. At some point, it's perhaps time to say, let's try something else. And there's a very simple reason why it's not working, because it's very costly and will do very little good. If the Kyoto Protocol actually had been implemented, it would have cost about $180 billion a year for the rest of the century. Yet, it would have made immeasurable impact. We estimate that by the end of the century, it would reduce temperatures by 0.004 degrees. Of course, we actually didn't deliver on any of those promises, so now the reduction is about 20 times less. So, even if we actually had done everything we promised, we would have had no measurable impact in 100 years. How can we justify to have spent 20 years on that policy. And yet many people will say, it only goes to show we need to do much more. Well, the EU is doing that. The EU has promised to say that we have a habit in the EU of saying, well, if nobody else is going to solve the problem, if nobody else is going to save the world, we will have to do it. And so we've decided we're going to cut 20% below 1990 levels by 2020, the so-called 2020 policy, I think, to a very large extent, because it sounds really cool to say 2020. The cost, if you run all the macroeconomic models, is about $250 billion annually. So we're going to spend about $20 trillion across the century. What's going to be the benefit? By the end of the century, we will have about a, a 0.05 or about a 20th of a degree centigrade lower. Again, we will not be able to measure this after having spent that much money. We will have a reduction in sea level rise of 9 millimeters. Is that really the best we can do for our dependents? Every time we spend a dollar, the econo economists estimate, we will probably avoid about three cents of climate damage. Congratulations. That's not the best way to spend a dollar and do good. 
Now, I appreciate the fact that we might do good, and at least we didn't spend it and not get anything for it, but it still isn't very cool when you could have given the dollar away and done 97% more good, right? No, that's not true, a lot more, but 97 cents more good. And yet, this doesn't mean that most people say, hmm, maybe this is not right either. They simply say, this only goes to show we gotta do even more. We gotta promise to cut carbon emissions so much that, that we reach the two degrees centigrade limit, which is what everybody's talking about now. Of course, somebody's talking about 1.5 degrees. You, you should always be a little worried when they're these round numbers because obviously they're just made up. But anyway, let's just take a look at how much would that actually cost. If we tried to achieve the two degrees centigrade limit, the estimate is that by mid-century, this would cost 5.5% GDP. This was the UN estimate, but they didn't run it to 2100. We asked Richard Toll to do so, uh, and he came up and showed that this is actually going to cost, by the end of the century, about $40,000 billion per year. 13% of GDP. Is it any wonder nobody's actually going to do this? Of course, everybody's wild about saying they want to do it, but they're not actually going to do it. And I doubt that our kids and grandkids are going to applaud us for having spoken really beautifully about the problem. The problem here really is to say for every dollar we spent, we avoid about two cents of climate damage, a very poor way to do this. And remember, this is only if everybody across the century, across continents, with all the politicians do all the right things at all the right times and employ the most efficient strategies to achieve that, that's basically carbon taxes. If they don't, which seems not an unreasonable assumption, the cost could increase somewhere between 10 and 100 times. Or to put it differently, because obviously we wouldn't be able to afford it, we won't even implement it and still waste a huge amount of money. That's the real discussion. The current approach doesn't work because it's essentially asking us to spend lots of money to do very little good. And remember, we don't burn fossil fuels to annoy Al Gore. We burn it because it powers pretty much everything we like. If we take economic growth versus uh, uh, growth in CO2, we see a very straight line which is why it's very hard to tell politicians, could you please cut back on your CO2? Because most politicians know very well what that means. That means cutting back in your growth. It doesn't mean the growth goes to zero. We can still have positive growth, but it does mean a reduction in growth. That is the fundamental trade-off, and that's, of course, why it's going to be so hard to do so. A lot of people, for instance, uh, uh, Nicholas Stern has said, it actually pays off. The problem with those kinds of arguments, I'd love to go into more detail about this kind of uh, issue. This is from uh, one of the uh, period studies uh, of the uh, Stern, uh, Stern Review. Uh, if you look, these are the period studies that show, yes, damages is real, and they're probably negative in terms of GDP, but the costs of totally avoiding them are probably greater, which is why, and not very surprisingly, that studies will say we should do some, but certainly not cut all of the CO2 emissions. Basically, we should cut you know, the first ton of CO2 cut is very cheap, that we should do. The last ton of CO2 is very expensive, that we shouldn't do. But the Stern report actually came out and said the exact opposite. Basically, from an, a long discussion, uh, underestimating the cost, which is later escalated, but dramatically overstating the damages, which is, of course, exactly the kind of conversation that we have when we hear that every hurricane and every flooding is predominantly due to global warming. That's why we need to do something about it. Well, that's why I think it's important to recognize that, yes, it has some play on some of these issues, but it's very unhelpful to just hear that one side of the story. Why is it that it doesn't, uh, it turns out not to pay if you have any reasonable discount on the future? Well, basically because all the cost 
come up front. This is one model from, uh, 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 from Nordhaus, uh, but they all show the same similar graph if we try to get the world to stabilize at 1990 levels. The costs come up front, and the benefits come much, much later, essentially crossing here in the second part of, the sec of, of next century. And remember, by then, of course, we've run up a huge debt that we basically have to repay um, in, in this triangle. So typically, these kind of investments only pay off in the next 250 years. Now, that's fine if you have nothing else to spend your money on. But given the fact that there are many other problems where we could invest and do much more good, this is probably one of the least effective ways to help the world. Uh, due to time constraints, I'm just going to drop these uh, and just move on and essentially say what I think we need is to start talking about how can we make smart solutions instead. And if you'll allow me just a metaphor for this, because I really think this is crucial to, to get this across. I think the polar bear in many ways is a great example. The polar bear has become the icon of global warming. If you see a picture of a polar bear, you think about global warming. And yes, polar bears will have a harder time with diminishing, eventually disappearing summer Arctic ice. But I think also you might be uh, 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 well served to know two other facts. Part one is that polar bears are not in any way endangered right now. They've actually dramatically increased. Uh, we estimate uh, from 1960, the global polar bear population was about 5,000. Now it's about 22,000 individuals. So it's not like it's being eradicated right now, but it will have a problem into the future. But the second point, I think, is much more important, and that is, what should we do about it? Again, just like with malaria and all the other things, we hear polar bears are going to have a problem. Let's cut carbon emissions. Let's just think about how much is that actually going to help polar bears. If we accept all of these issues, what can we actually do? Well, if we implement the Kyoto Protocol, which is, again, 20 times more than the world has actually managed to do, we would save every year about one polar bear. Now, I like polar bears. And I think it'd be great to save a polar bear, maybe even a couple hundred billion dollars a year. But I'm surprised that we don't have a conversation about the fact, is there smarter ways to save polar bears? Right now, we shoot polar bears. And it's not like we shoot a few of them. Every year, we shoot between 300 and 500 polar bears. I don't know about you, but it strikes me that maybe we should stop shooting 300 polar bears first. <laughs> Apart from the fact that it would be better for 299 polar bears, it would also be a couple hundred billion dollars cheaper. And that's the real crux here, to start asking those questions that will allow us to say, what are smart ways to fix the problems? And there are lots of really cheap and very effective ways if we really care about polar bears, or people dying from heat waves, or people dying from, uh, 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 from flooding, or from all the other problems. That's the real crux. And that's why we asked some of the world's uh, 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 top climate economists, where can you spend money to do the most good, if you want to do good on climate? And what they essentially told us is, well, let's just try and take a look at this. Right now, you know, the alternative fo to fossil fuels, let's just say solar panels, but they're just a metaphor. They cost much more than fossil fuels. So is the right solution, what we seem to be doing right now, is the right solution to force everyone to buy lots and lots of these incredibly inefficient and very expensive solar panels? Or is it to try to innovate the price down so that they eventually become cost competitive with fossil fuels, and hopefully cheaper than fossil fuels. This is the way that we're trying right now. 
We're trying to make it so expensive to use fossil fuels that nobody wants to use it, that everybody will go to uh, solar panels. The problem is that's hugely costly, which means there'll always be a niche thing. And it's politically almost impossible to do in most parts of the world, certainly in China and the US. So we're essentially left with something that makes us feel good. We spend lots of money, and we don't get anywhere. Why is it we don't focus instead on innovating the price down? Because fundamentally, there's a huge undersupply of research money into green energy. We've seen declining levels over the last 20, 25 years, dramatically declining levels of research uh, money going into this. And that's a public good, because it's not going to come in the next five years. It's going to come in the next 20 or 40 years. And that's why the Nobels came out and said the best way to tackle long-term global warming is to dramatically increase investment, research, and development into green energy technologies. Right now, we spend very, very little, increase at about somewhere between 10 and 50-fold to 0.2% of GDP. It would be about $100 billion a year. It would be half the cost of the Kyoto Protocol. and It would be about, as I said, almost up to 50 times what we're spending right now. So it would be a huge jump, yet it would be much cheaper. And the amazing thing is that estimates seem to indicate that this would actually solve, and again, Let's remember, this is not just about solar panels. It's about a whole array, uh, array of different technologies, because we don't know which one of these many technologies is going to work. We should be focusing on all of them. But the trick is, we don't have to have all of them come true. Probably most of them are not. We just need some of them to come true, and those are the ones that will power the 21st century. But the amazing thing is that the indication is that that will actually solve global warming in the medium term, in the sense that we will eventually, over the next 20 to 40 years, stop using fossil fuels for the very simple reason if we make solar panels cheaper than fossil fuels everyone will switch we'll solve the problem not we don't have to have big jamborees in copenhagen and convince everybody or beat them in the state to to uh, to adopt the kyoto style treaty people will just buy them and of course again remember i'm making a very over, overly simplistic argument here because obviously we also need to solve the storage problem many many other things but the idea is to make sure that that combination of technology becomes cheaper because then everyone, also the Chinese and the Indians, will buy it. And the amazing thing is, if we try to cost it, it turns out that for every dollar we spend, we'll avoid about $11 of climate damage. So instead of the current solution, which spends a dollar and does a couple of cents of climate good, we could spend that money and do about 500 times more good. That's the real trick. Of course, this is not nearly as politically exciting because it doesn't mean you can stand up and say, I'm going to solve the world. We're going to promise to cut our carbon emissions because we're only going to be funding research and development that will solve future problems. But it's the right way to go. And I hope that ultimately, because we've seen all the failures, that we'll start understanding that. I asked, that I told you that I was going to show you four arguments. I've just shown you three. Global warming is real. We're dramatically overfed by incorrect descriptions, which makes us use bad decisions. That's why we need to find smart ways to tackle global warming. And really, that's about investing in research and development in green energy. But there is a fourth, and I think it's important to have it along. Because as I started out with saying, presumably, this is about how we leave this world for future generations. And we just got to say it. This is a talk about global warming, so it's fine, and that's what we're going to focus on. But let's just remember. For the vast majority of people in this world, there's much, much more important problems. If your kids are dying from easily curable infectious diseases, you don't have anything to eat tonight, you don't have access to electricity, you don't have access to clean drinking water and sanitation, you don't 
care all that much about temperature rise in 100 years. This does not mean we shouldn't deal with climate change, as I've tried to outline, but it does mean I think we have a grave responsibility to remember to deal smartly with all the problems, and that also means not wasting a lot of money on ineffective climate policies. Just to give you a sense of proportion, Al Gore, and I think many others, talk about global warming as a generational mission. He says, how do you want to be remembered by your kids and your grandkids? I think that's the exact right question. How do you want to be remembered? The amazing thing is that most well-meaning people I know, certainly Al Gore, but also many of the other players, many of my good friends, want and seem to want to be remembered for spending hundreds of billions of dollars every year to do virtually no good 100 years from now. I'm just not sure our kids and grandkids are going to say, great going there, granddad, when we could have done so much more good. Just to give you a sense of proportion for what the Kyoto cost, the UN estimate for half that cost, about $75 billion, we could solve all major basic problems. We could give clean drinking water, sanitation, basic health care, and, whoa, I'm not sure what happened there, and education to every single human being on the planet. Again, my point is simply to say, how would you rather want to be remembered? Spending twice as much money doing virtually no good 100 years from now, or spending half that amount of money and fix all major basic problems today? When you ask it that way, it's really hard to say, ah, I think I'm going to go with the first solution. And that's the real crux of this argument. Let's spend our money well. We can actually, if we spend it well, afford both. But as long as we're so focused on overspending on bad solutions on climate change, because we're scared, not because we're misled by the science, because global warming is a real problem, something we need to tackle, but because we're scared, witless, we're unlikely to make headway either in climate change because we need much smarter solutions, and we're also unlikely to make headway on all the other problems because we are over-focused on global warming and forget all the other issues. I would like us to bring us back and say, global warming is real, it's a man-made problem, we need to fix it, but we need to keep our sense of proportion. It's a problem, like many others in this world, like many others we need to fix in the 21st century. Let's fix it, but let's fix it smartly. That is invest dramatically more in research and development in green energy, make sure we get the technologies that will essentially make everyone switch before the, mid, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, middle of the century. And let's remember that all the money that we don't spend, that we please spend that on things that would actually matter for a lot of people right now. Thank you very much. Very good, very high tech. Um, thank you very much for inviting me, and thanks to Bjorn for a, uh, uh, a very stimulating and very compelling. Seems to want to turn around and censor me. I shall not be censored. Put it up there. Is that better? Um, for a very compelling presentation, and it was a very compelling presentation. I, um, there's a, you know, there's one thing actually I would agree with up front. The Stern Review, which uh, for a while uh, after we published I headed, uh, was indeed wrong. Uh, it was wrong about the impacts from climate change. Uh, but it was wrong because it understated the impacts from climate change. And indeed, we knew it was understating the impacts from climate change. Uh, but we felt that if we can tell a compelling story on the basis of conservative numbers, uh, we can certainly tell a, a compelling story on the basis of more plausible numbers. That's why we talked about two to three degree temperature ranges uh, consistent with the concentrations we were uh, projecting, and not two degrees, or one and a half degrees, which much, most of the experts now talk about. 
But the experts are probably right. They usually are. And two degrees, one and a half degrees is probably uh, the thing that we should aim for. Um, but I'm not going to sit here. I don't, I don't want to sit here and um, just you know, talk about all the issues um, I disagree with. I would be here probably till Christmas. But, um, I, yeah, and I don't want this to descend into yes, another one of these sort of fractious debates on climate change. He says he's right, I say I'm right, and everybody leaves, and uh, no one's any the wiser. So instead, what I'm going to try and do is suggest a sensible methodology so that we all, as individuals, uh, can determine for ourselves uh, what the appropriate approach is to assess this issue, because it is a complicated issue. If we care about the environment and about leaving this planet and its inhabitants for the best possible future, we actually have only one option. We all need to start seriously focusing right now on the most effective ways to fix global warming. That's not me, that's Bjorn Longbook from his uh, recent book, Smart Solutions to Climate Change. He's not a science skeptic. He believes that the Earth is warming, uh, and warming at an unprecedented rate, and that humans, not sunspots or whatever, are to blame. Uh, he's a new breed of skeptic. He derives his skepticism from the seemingly common sense cost-benefit analysis. He, he concludes, it's unfortunate that so many policymakers and campaigners have become fixated on cutting carbon in the near term as the chief response to global warming. He adds, drastic carbon cuts will be the poorest way to respond to global warming, as he's very articulately uh, expressed here right now. Well, here's the thing. Bjorn Lomborg is a skeptical environmentalist. He's green. Uh, he's an environmentalist. He's well-intentioned. He has our best interests at heart. He sets himself up as a, a balanced, reasoned, uh, and measured individual. Not one of these agenda-driven, frothing-at-the-mouth eco-warriors. He's calm. He's considered. He's rational. He, he just said, we can't make proper decisions uh, and prioritize our goals if we think we've got a gun to our head. And that, that's got to be right. Stop the scare. Think smartly, he just said. He wants to abstract from all this noise and look objectively, clinically, at the facts. After all, this is far too important to get wrong. There are many urgent, pressing demands on our attention. Poverty, hunger, HIV, AIDS, malaria, to name but a few. It's a long list, and we can't afford to waste resources unnecessarily. But what could possibly be wrong with that? Nothing. Except, unfortunately, objective balance is not what Beyond Longborg applies to this issue. His argument that it costs more to reduce emissions than the savings derived from action simply does not, it cannot stack up. And I'm going to try and explain why. Now, you are all a self-selected audience. You're above average intelligence. You're learned. You're informed. You're intellect rich, but time poor. None of us have time to go through and read all the peer-reviewed scientific and economic journals. We just can't do that. And what Bjorn Longbug has to say sounds very sensible and compelling, but we want to know, is it right? Well, to answer this, we need to adopt a very simple two-step approach. Very, very sensible, very rational, and very uh, intuitive. First, as with any good science, our conceptual framework for analysis needs to be a priori logically consistent. Secondly, having got the right conceptual methodology, we need to make sure that our evidence stacks up. Our investigation must be empirically rigorous. It must reflect the complete set, not just bits of evidence, but all the evidence available to us. And I'm going to argue that Bjorn Lomborg fails on both counts. That far from being measured and balanced, Lomborg arbitrarily rejects the most considered analysis in favor of his own prior judgments in order to derive his conclusions. So let's start with the conceptual framework. Now, we know that global warming is happening. Greenhouse gases trap heat. They melt ice. They raise sea levels. 
We know greenhouse gases stay in the atmosphere for tens, hundreds of years, so that the stock is going up and the temperature is also going up. What we don't know is all the feedbacks in the climate system. Pressure patterns will change, cloud feedbacks will alter, seasonal air currents and ocean dynamics uh, will shift. And this causes changes in the level and distribution of water, storms, floods, droughts, river floods. In other words, all the changes that are fundamental determinants of how and where we live our lives. And as a consequence, places previously inundated with rains will now become deserts and vice versa. So the science is probabilistic in its projection. It talks about a range of temperatures. For each range of temperatures, there's a range of impacts. For each range of impact, there's a range of cost and damage assessments. It's probabilistic. It's what economists call stochastic. And the scientists agree that there are known thresholds, these nonlinear feedback mechanisms in the pipeline, which once we get there, it's very difficult to reverse. Things like uh, the melting of the tundra ice pack, which releases a very potent greenhouse gas, methane, which accelerates global warming. The dieback of forests heats up equatorial reasons. The, uh, the, 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 the melting of snow and ice reduces the amount of sunlight that's reflected back into the atmosphere. All these mechanisms start to propagate runaway uh, global warming. So it's not just a question of how much do we spend today for a, uh, a narrow set of, uh, of outcomes. We've got to think about the dynamics through time. And yet we care not only about what we expect, we also care about the one in ten chance of a catastrophe uh, that, that is beyond just our central expectation. It's possible we will be okay, as, as Bjorn Longborg thinks we will. And the question is, do we want to take that chance? It's like that old Clint Eastwood line. Do you feel lucky, punk? And we're all the punks. And we have to ask ourselves uh, that question. We, we, we all buy insurance on the off chance that our flats will burn down. We know the insurance companies make money out of this, but we do it because we're worried about low probability uh, events. So why not devote some resources to reducing the risks uh, to our planet, especially when the insurance, it turns out, actually isn't that expensive. It's actually a bit of a bargain. But Lombard can't ask that question because his methodology doesn't allow it. In his cost-benefit analysis, he assumes that everything is known with definitive certainty. There are no risks. There are no uncertainties. Well, of course, in such a world, you can adapt to just about anything and plan ahead perfectly. Ergo, you won't tend to be very fast about reducing emissions. Now, to my mind, this single flaw alone renders Lombard's approach to addressing this issue valueless. But I'm afraid it doesn't end there. Lombard sets up, as we've just seen, this arbitrary challenge. He asks, if the world community is to spend, say, $250 billion a year over the next 10 years to diminish the adverse effects of, of uh, climate change and to do the most good for the world, what solutions would yield the greatest net benefits? It sounds a perfectly reasonable question. He assumes a notional budget constraint in order to rank our projects. And by doing so, he appeals to the very common sense notion, the very common sense doctrine of getting the best bang for your buck, right? You pick the best items out of a shopping list. But doing it this way makes absolutely no sense. The projects and outcomes that we're talking about are all interrelated. Many of the development challenges that Lomborg spoke about, that we would prefer to spend money on fighting HIV AIDS, preventing malaria, malnutrition, education, you name it, will be made worse, and perhaps much worse, by climate change. If the projects are interrelated in this way, rather than being independent, then it is entirely inappropriate to handle the analysis conceptually by assuming separate, mutually exclusive choices. It will be a bit like saying it's preferable to build a roof than to build walls and foundations, because a roof is better at keeping out the rain. 
So I would argue that Lomborg's methodological approach to weighing it all up is unambiguously biased in a direction which predetermines his conclusions that greenhouse gases uh, is not, uh, that, that greenhouse gas reduction is not an urgent issue. And we haven't even looked at the evidence yet. This is just the methodology. Unfortunately, the evidence is biased too. Take his estimate of the cost of inaction, which he spoke about just now. The science of climate change, of course, drives this. As Longborg puts it himself, the risks of unchecked global warming are now widely acknowledged, he says. We have long moved on from any mainstream disagreements about the, climate, the science of climate change. He says he accepts the basic science. But does he? Well, sadly not. At least not the science that's accepted by the uh, climate science community. He says he takes his cue from the IPCC. But if he did, I think he'd come out with very different conclusions, which I hope to show. And there's a very good reason for this, because it's virtually impossible to argue for delayed action if you accept the risks outlined by the climate scientists. The science simply swamps the economics. But don't listen to me. Don't listen to Longborg. We don't have time to read all the peer-reviewed <coughs> literature, but you can go on Google and just type in scientific opinion. It'll actually preempt climate change. And just look at the Wikipedia pages, look at some of the peer-reviewed journals that come up. And this is the blogosphere, by the way. This is where all the skeptics and the deniers and all the rest of it have their field day. Uh, they don't publish any peer-reviewed stuff because it wouldn't pass muster. And you still will get a very strong impression of what the science is really talking about. Look at the public statements of every National Academy of Sciences on the planet. Look at the conclusions of military and national security communities. All 16 US intelligence agencies think this is urgent. Now, I know Bjorn is sitting there thinking, well, yeah, but I agree with the science, so I don't quite get his point. But actually, you can't come to those conclusions on the basis of what you've outlined. The overwhelming scientific opinion, the IPCC included, say that if we don't take action, we'll see a rise in global temperature five degrees or more above pre-industrial levels next century. Five degrees doesn't sound like much, right? But such a temperature has not been seen on the planet for 30 million years. Humanity's only been on the planet for 200,000. The last time we were five degrees cooler, there were ice sheets knocking on the door of London. That is a big temperature difference. And we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of years. We're talking about two centuries. And yet Lomborg thinks that that's going to cost a fraction of a percent of GDP. I, 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 you know, that, it, just doesn't pass, it just doesn't pass the sniff test. And the reason he finds that is because he uses Richard Toll's modeling assumption. He uses one very biased model in order to come up with his numbers. And that model tells us that, in fact, there'll be net benefits of the world up to about three degrees warmer and only small losses thereafter. Consequently, Lomborg's optimal path, and this is a bit techie and scientific, so I apologize, but the optimal path takes us to about 850 parts per million of CO2. And that means a 10% chance of a world warming to about seven degrees. Seven degrees over 200 years is unthinkable. It would cause unfathomable suffering and mass extinction both to humanity and to most other species on the planet. It's something that we wouldn't want to risk, even if it was a, an outlier chance. And one in 10 isn't that much of an outlier chance. Well, as I, as I say, Toll's model is an outlier, and uh, you know, unfortunately, it's the only one that Lomborg uses. But what about the evidence on the costs of action? He says it's incredibly expensive. But again, I'm afraid if you look at the objective evidence, he loads the dice. He tells a story of doom, gloom, suffering, and sacrifice. And climate action is all about raising energy bills, crowding out investment, stifling growth. growth. Uh, stifling growth, he uses the phrase, his favorite phrase, crippling the global economy. As he just said right now, he uses uh, Toll's uh, estimates to uh, suggest that a two-degree pathway would require a staggering 13% of GDP. That is indeed staggering. 
But unfortunately, or perhaps I should say thankfully, it does not represent the economic community's main findings. Sure, there will be some upfront investment. There has to be. Expert groups as diverse as the International Energy Agency, the OECD, the World Bank, McKinsey's, the European Commission, Stanford University, MIT, Deutsche Bank, HSBC, I could go on, suggest that the cost will be of the order of 1-2-3% of GDP, not 13% of GDP. Now, 1-2-3%, that's not trivial, but over 30 years, as Bjorn just said, uh, a period over which GDP more than doubles, we would barely notice that difference. That's the cost of the insurance policy. Now, I do think Lomborg is right to emphasize that growth is sacrosanct. For billions of people across the world, economic development really is the only way out of poverty. Advances in education, uh, in health, in the environment, in equality of opportunity, not to mention climate resilience, are often and usually much easier to realize in an environment of growing income and consumption. But by aiming to be more resource efficient, energy secure, uh, and bring about a safer, quieter, more biologically diverse world, we can stimulate a dynamic and innovative industrial revolution that can underpin an upsurge in productivity. And we could do this independent of the climate imperative. New firms and methods will drive out old, new technologies and processes will very quickly be developed. Businesses understand the opportunities from entrepreneurial uh, revolutions. I advise Cisco, uh, a West Coast US IT company, one of many companies chomping at the bit for a clear policy lead in order to put their best minds and their entrepreneurs and their innovators into developing energy and renewable solutions. But the policy isn't there, so they don't risk it. They carry on doing things the bad old dirty way until they get a signal, until there's a market to make it worth their while. And it's that policy that people like Bjorn Lomborg are delaying in implementation. And all the time the costs are going up. Delaying action uh, to reduce emissions means that we lock into a high carbon infrastructure, we fail to develop these new markets, and we fail to provide a market that induces the innovation that then gets scaled up so that the technologists learn from experience and start to see the costs coming down very, very quickly. But we're not setting that process in train. And as a result, the costs and consequences of inaction, now Bjorn says you know, they're very small, but the consequences of inaction, they accumulate. It's not just the curve, it's the integral under the curve. Every small change in emissions has to be measured through time. So every year that we delay, we are adding cumulatively to that addition to the stock of greenhouse gases. And that is very, very costly. So to conclude and to weigh it all up, to deny the urgency of strong action in the face of all the evidence, I would argue is irrational and dangerous. It would require great confidence that both the scientific findings are wrong and the corresponding risks are small. Imagine Lomborg is right, and we act needlessly to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now, okay, that might lead us to a world of excessive investment in reducing waste and inefficiency, developing low-carbon technologies, and protecting forests. And these actions, you could argue, are nevertheless likely to have uh, substantial positive benefits anyway, in energy security, in energy efficiency, biodiversity, congestion, and so on. Now imagine the opposite. Imagine the scientists are right, because this is all about risks, right? Imagine the scientists are right, but we took Lomborg's advice, and we continued to pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere at an unsustainable rate. Well, then you see the cost-benefit analysis becomes rather stark. We would end up with concentrations of greenhouse gases carrying immense risks of the kinds that I've already spoken. Now, I welcome Bjorn Lomborg's conversion to the $100 billion spent annually on research and development. 18 months ago, it was $25 billion. It's definitely a step in the right direction. But he says... R&D and green energy technology is the only viable strategy. Is it? 
Economists would argue that policies that don't discriminate between technologies, such as prices, standards, regulations, are more efficient. They don't allow governments to be in a position to have to choose which technologies are best. They don't prompt a wasteful lobbying by vested interests in order to capture limited public funds. Just send a signal through a price, or a standard, or a regulation. Let the innovators develop the technology. Kyoto, Lombok says, was not enough, and he's right. It's the start of an incremental process. You know, it's a curve like that of emissions, and we need to start bending that curve. More definitely needs to be done. That, there, there can be no doubt about that. But to say that Kyoto was a failure is a gross exaggeration. Much domestic policy was built on the back of it, and there was a surge of technological innovation that followed in its wake, because scientists thought that this meant the beginning of a new market. Seeing Kyoto as a limitation as a reason for not focusing on greenhouse gas reductions is about as ridiculous as, as, as fa seeing failure to lose weight when you go to the gym as a reason to cancel your gym, gym membership and start eating cake. So in summary, Dr. Lombok should stop, I think, cherry-picking the analysis, take a more balanced view of the findings of scientists, economists, engineers, and technologists, and he should stop focusing on, uh, and he should focus, I should say, on limiting the rising greenhouse gas concentrations in order to eliminate risks, rather than argue almost exclusively for carrying on emitting and just addressing the risks through adaptation and geoengineering. Because to me, this sounds like a policy equivalent of mopping up water with the tap left running. And it certainly isn't a smart solution to climate change. Thank you very much. In the interest of time, in the interest of time. Okay, we have uh, at least, uh, well, 20 minutes or so. Uh, question and answer session. Question, not lectures, we just heard two uh, of them. Uh, Please wait for the micro. Please say who you are and where you come from. Uh, one up there. Uh, we'll, we'll collect uh, four. One up there, one up here. Go one here and one there. Okay, can we have these four, please? And then we'll give the two speakers the chance to respond. Yes, please. Yeah, uh, thank you. I'll try the two linked, hopefully quick. Um, my name is Matthew Alterino. I'm a professional. Uh, urban planning consultant. Um, well, sorry, I have to make one comment. I mean, you, you, you mentioned a couple times during the talk that people aren't talking about these things. Well, I can assure you that those of us in the industry who care about some of these issues, like urban design, are talking about trees and water in cities and painting tarmac and so forth. So I think that's too simplistic uh, a suggestion. Um, my question has to do with resources. You say that um, effectively if the world gets wealthier, it can deal with these problems, it can adapt better. Um, I'm wondering if you believe in finite resources. As income goes up, as wealth goes up, uh, resource throughput increases. Um, how, how uh, I guess, how do, how do you square that issue? And then uh, related to that is peak carbon or peak oil. But um, uh, you know, the fact that uh, a lot of economists suggest there's going to be boom-bust cycles and um, quite a lot of economic disruption because of, of um, peak energy concerns. And so therefore, I think that you know, suggests that economic growth might not be as okay. robust as, as Thank you suggests. very much. Second question over there. I had a question for Bjorn Lomborg uh, regarding your presentation of the science. Uh, a couple of things that struck me about it. One is that it was sort of, if you listen to your talk, you would rather get the feeling that Al Gore is the only scientist working on climate change. 
which seems something of a surprise and seems to be rather ignoring particularly the impact of heat rise on natural systems, so potentially talking about the impact of drought in the Amazon or possibly acidification of the ocean or Antarctic or Arctic ice melt. All of these issues, the response of natural systems, particularly the response of natural systems outside the developed world, just didn't appear to appear in your talk as a result of heat. And I wondered, why is this that you chose that approach? One question here, please. Thank you. My name is Morten Christensen. I'm a student of international relations here at LSE. Um, you, you said that it would be fairly easy for the Maldives um, to protect themselves uh, from, from sea rise and protect their, their dry land. Could you be more specific as to what kind of policies they actually could carry out to, uh, to protect themselves? Thank okay. you. Thank you. Good short question. Yes, please. <laughs> Hi, I'm Maria Carvalho and I'm a PhD candidate at LSE and I'm with the Grantham Institute. Um, my question is basically to look at an interesting ch trend that's happening in China. Everyone slams China for the amount of coal stations that are brought out, and that's fair enough. But um, And China has become now the largest emitter of, ch of emissions, especially from the power sector. But China has also become the largest solar PV module producer. Over 50% of modules are produced in China. It has now is the largest investor in renewable energy and clean energy technologies. Um, would you say that a lot of that impetus in moving in that direction is because of climate change or bringing China to the table in terms of dealing with chi chi climate change, or is it more other issues of such as energy security? Okay. John, do you want to start? Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot of questions. Not like we, <laughs> if we take four, there'll be more time. But fundamentally, uh, you ask, yes, there's lots of people talking about it in the individual sectors, but I think, and that's also a little bit the discussion with Al Gore, I'm, I'm probably trying to address a slightly different discussion, namely the one that we have as publics. But you're absolutely right. There are many other things, and there are lots of really smart people working a lot of solutions, but we just don't give them very much credit, and we don't spend very much money on it. You had two specific re uh, questions. Are we going to run out of resources? Is that actually possible? Of course, the, that's an incredibly long discussion. My short, short answer is to say, if everybody in the world is going to get a car, and it runs on gas, yes, then we will have a problem. And that's why we'll have to have innovation, so that when everybody gets a car, it'll run on electricity. So you're absolutely right. We do need to see this as, as an evolving uh, uh, target. If we're going to talk about energy, uh, 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 are we going to have peak energy? Are we going to have boom-bust cycles? I, I think, if anything, we've seen uh, uh, development in, uh, uh, in innovation very, very clearly with the cracking of, of gas that's essentially made gas uh, wildly available over the next 100, 200 years. Uh, so so that shows that innovation is actually much more likely to make more energy uh, available, which of course will make the whole transition uh, to global warming uh, more problematic. Uh, you, you asked me, I'm sorry, I'd love to answer more, but you know, I've, I've, I, I get the sense from, my, uh, from, the, uh, from the moderator. Um, you asked me, uh, why, why do I only speak about people? I did speak about people also in developing countries so with, uh, with uh, for instance, malaria. But yes, it was on people. Again, this is, I think, what m uh, matters most to people. I did also talk about polar bears. But you're absolutely right. There are other things that we should talk about. Uh, uh, acidification, I don't talk about that. That is a problem. I doubt that it's, uh, and, and I'd love to have that conversation as well. We don't have very good studies on how much of an impact that's going to be. But it seems to me that it's unlikely that it'll have a large impact. But that is one of the things. And of course, whole ecosystems are going to change.
change? Yes, that is, uh, that is important. Again, the main way that I've looked at it is, for instance, in, uh, and that's also where we have the most models, is, for instance, in the impact on agriculture, because that's incredibly important, again, for humans. Uh, and it turns out that we're going to see uh, declines, for instance, in developing countries. We're going to see increases in, in yields in developed countries. Uh, if you take into account that we'll have uh, trade, which we should have and which we have right now, uh, the, the, the net impact by, by, uh, by the mid-'80s is going to be on the order of minus 1.4% to plus 1.7%, so very negligible, probably a, a tiny uh, negative impact. So again, the point is, when we can adapt to it, we will actually, but it doesn't mean that there's no problems, and yes, the full discussion should be wider. Mind you, the cost-benefit estimates do include some things, like, for instance, loss of wetlands, but they don't include everything. Uh, you asked uh, uh, about the Maldives. Uh, the, the, the simple answer is if you go to the Maldives, they have actually already made uh, uh, a big and very unobtrusive uh, uh, seawalls uh, where you have uh, a, like a, a, a five or a ten foot uh, seawall rise over, over the span of, uh, of hundreds of meters. So you rarely even uh, notice it. And those are the kinds of solutions. Again, remember when sea levels rise, it's not like you're going to flood things, uh, as, we, as we typically talk about. We'll make it more likely that you will have a flood when you also have a springtide, it's called, and, and, a, uh, and a, uh, the wind that comes towards you. Those are the kinds of things, and that's where you need the, uh, the dikes. Uh, but if, you know, if you want a very simple point, the, the argument, of course, is that Holland has very well shown that you can live with uh, much, much uh, higher sea level rises. It doesn't mean that I'm saying I'm advocating this, but I think, and that's one of the crucial problems I have in this whole conversation, is that somehow implicit, we very often like, uh, like to argue, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have this problem? And of course it would. But the issue is really not, should we not have the problem or should we have the problem? The issue is how do we want to tackle it and how much? And that's really, uh, I know we didn't have time. Uh, we, again, we'd probably also love to, uh, to debate a lot of this stuff. But fundamentally, I, I, I think it's important to say we've tried the establishment solution for 20 years and we've gotten nowhere. It strikes me that maybe we want to uh, move on to other places. The last question uh, uh, the, on, on China. I think China is a great example of the incredible methodology, or sorry, myth Odology, can you say that? Uh, that? That sprung up around the whole global warming issue. Yes, China emits lots and lots of CO2, it's the biggest carbon emitter, and uh, emitting more and more. Everybody's saying, but they're producing lots of uh, uh, solar uh, voltaics. Yeah, to incredibly subsidized prices in Germany and elsewhere. Of course, they're smart producers, they produce pretty much everything we buy. That's great. But remember, China themselves make one, uh, a two, no, sorry, uh, how do you say, two. What is the half of a thousandth of a percentage point of, of, uh, of, their, of their energy comes from solar uh, voltaics? So they get virtually nothing. They sell it to Germany. Remember, Germany is spending about $75 billion on subsidies for energy that's worth about $3 billion to feel incredibly good about themselves. What's the net impact? The net impact of that whole spending is to delay global warming by the end of the century by seven hours. Congratulations. Again, the whole point here is to say as long as the, we put the cart in front of the horse and say what's going to drive it is to have incredibly high subsidies and or incredibly high taxes, we're not going to get anywhere because it's not happening politically and it's economically a bad idea. Since no question was uh, asked to Dimitri, I'll give him the opportunity in the next round. We'll, uh, I'll have three more uh, questions for the time being. I'll have one here, one all the way on the top, and then one here, the lady here. Right? So, yes, please. 
I have a question to Dimitri, actually, since there was none. Um, from your presentation, I had the feeling that next to greenhouse gases, people like Bjorn are the next biggest problem in the world, and um, not maybe <laughs> malaria or um, <laughs> lack of access to education, sanitation, whatever. So I'm just asking, okay, maybe the science can be debated, but what's actually the problem with the solutions? What is the problem with actually not only focusing in politics on climate change, but also on access to sanitation and things like that? I actually didn't see something wrong with it. Okay. The gentleman on the top, yeah? Yes, please, with the micro. Uh, Michael Grubb from Cambridge Economics. Uh, the pleasure of reviewing Skeptical Environmentalists for Nature, actually. Um, I just questioned, first, sea level rise. Uh, why did you stop in 2100 and not mention that the IPCC said their estimate explicitly excluded the risk of collapse of ice sheets, which would melt given another couple of hundred years anyway, but they didn't understand enough about the dynamics. Why, in stating that the peer-reviewed literature all came out with lower numbers than the Stern Review, did you not include Marty Weitzman, one of the world's top economists publishing in top journals, whose core publication is showing that reductionist cost-benefits estimates are eclipsed by the way that risks of the uncertain and unknown estimate. And finally, what's the mechanism and this is the heart of your debate. What is actually the mechanism by which spending money on fossil fuel developments and oil imports, rather than a bit more money on low-carbon capital-intensive infrastructure, results in more money being spent on things which we haven't spent enough on in the last couple of decades, malaria reduction, etc., etc.? Because there's a lot of money in the world the challenge is if we should spend more on malaria, let's do so. But let's not pretend that capital can easily shift from doing something in the energy system to doing something about third world poverty. Okay, thank you. And yes, the question here, the lady here with the glasses. Hi, I'm Anna da Costa from Imperial College. Um, I just wanted to ask about the Basically, you've based a lot of your arguments on current economic models, and it strikes me that if you incorporate externalities such as ecosystem services, it could disrupt your arguments significantly. So I'd like to hear from both speakers what that might do to these arguments. Yes. And secondly, I haven't really heard much mention of, much mention of the way that we measure our well-being being basically growth. And I'd like to hear a lot more about whether this eternal growth can, con can continue and whether there are better ways to measure social well-being. Uh, Bjorn, if I can uh, take the opportunity and ask you a, a short question. Um, climate change, different from malaria, climate change is basically caused by a market failure, right? So Micro 101 will tell you those who produce greenhouse gas emissions should not simply be allowed to externalize the costs on someone else. And that logic isn't really defeated by uh, the fact that, you know, spending money on malaria will cause uh, lots of benefits. So I don't quite see how climate change fits into with the other uh, things you consider your Copenhagen consensus. Please, go ahead. Cool. Uh, yeah, and that also addresses part of your question up, uh, uh, up there. Um, the fundamental point again here is to say, if we worry about some things, there are other things we don't talk about. There's a tendency that we worry about the issues that have the proponents that shout the loudest, that have the most impressive pictures, or the cutest animals, 
but it's unlikely to be a good way to prioritize in the world. Now, of course, fundamentally, there's nothing to say that just because we spend less money on climate, we're going to spend it on malaria. We might m actually spend it on bigger SUVs. So you're absolutely right. There's no reason implicitly in this discussion. But what we try to say is we're clearly a, care, you know, a race that cares most about ourselves. We, you know, if, you, if you look at a national level, we probably spend 95 98% of all money on ourselves. So we don't care all that much about the rest of the world, but we care some. We care in the way that we send peacekeeping forces, that we spend money on climate change, that we spend money on terrorism, that we spend money on development aid, and that we spend money on some other things like uh, developing vaccines and, and uh, or interventions for third world diseases. So in that sense, we say, all right, we're willing to spend a couple percent. In my head, that argument comes from saying, we hear stories and we feel compelled to spend money on some of those things that are that are depressing or we feel that we should do something about. A little bit like the way we saw uh, uh, Africa aid in 1984, uh, and we all felt, okay, we gotta do something about it. That's terrible, we gotta do something. So issues crowd out other issues. We listen to some things, but there are lots of things we listen very little to, and hence also spend very little on. And I think if we start spending less and spending more smartly and have a more uh, recent conversation on climate change, it seems reasonable to me that we would also have more space to talk about some of the very many other issues that we should be spending. So I doubt that we are going to see less of total spending. We're still going to spend 1% to 2% of our income on helping people, but we could spend it a lot better. That's why we talk about this. Now, you're absolutely right. It's not a market failure. Uh, and we actually also argue that, you know, obviously there's one market failure, which was the one that Stern report focused very much on, that you need to tax carbon emissions. I think that's entirely right. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, tall study, and that's not on one model, as, 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 you, as you pointed out. It's on all the models indicate that the median estimate of the damage cost of an extra ton of CO2 in the atmosphere around now is about $7 per ton. And that, uh, and let's just remember. Well, I mean, look, this is a period-published study. I'm not sure that you have any other because there is no other. Uh, but the the fundamental point here is, Stern was at the 97 percentile. He was the extreme outlier, not this argument. And the seven dollars per ton is actually enough. It actually generates this uh, 250 billion dollars a year, which would be the kind of argument that we are saying you could actually deal with virtually all of these problems, both in climate change and impact on climate change, and tackle the other problems in the world. But the point is to recognize that this, a $7 per ton carbon tax, is a huge uh, uh, political issue uh, uh, today. I don't see that happening anytime soon. But even if we could get it, it wouldn't matter much. It wouldn't make people change. So that's not the market failure that's important. The market failure that's important is the lack of investment in research and development, because obviously that's a huge market failure as well. We know that there's huge social benefits to long-term investment in many different areas, like, for instance, energy. We spend lots of money on medical research because everybody cares about when they're getting old. They want to be cured of all their, uh, their ailments. We don't on climate, or sorry, we don't on energy. And that's why we need to say we need to invest more. If I just allow me one metaphor, if you look at how we make computers work, in the 1950s, we needed dramatic technological innovation. The standard way to argue with climate on computers would have been to say, we need to increase the market for it. We need to buy everybody one of those computers that take up a basement and can do you know, le less than most of your cell phones. What a thankful thing we didn't do that. They would also have said this, the sure trick 
to develop computers is to put a tax on alternative technologies. No, we didn't develop uh, computers by taxing typewriters. The way we did it was to dramatically increase investment in research and development. We did it back then for the space research and, for, of course, for the competition between the U.S. and Soviet Union. The trick here is to recognize that before computers get sufficiently cheap, we can't get anywhere. But once they get sufficiently cheap, of course, IBM, Apple, everybody else makes them and we'll buy them. We have them on our cell phones. We have them everywhere. We don't have to have big international agreements. Okay, we're all going to buy computers. We do it because they're great. And that's the real trick here. So there was, uh, 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 you had a, a few more questions. I'm sorry, I, I couldn't hear all of what you said. You said, why do I only look till 2100? Uh, actually, in, in the models that we, uh, that we looked at for, for the Copenhagen consensus, we did go to 2300. Uh, so that is at least implicitly in the, in the discussion. Uh, you also asked, um, no, that, sorry, that was, the, uh, that was the spending argument. Uh, you did talk about the uncertainty. Again, this was also a point that you raised. The uncertainty uh, uh, is, for instance, built into the model on, uh, from uh, uh, Nordhaus. Uh, he's put in uh, basically an uncertainty uh, ratio of a cube on the, uh, on the temperature that basically means uh, an inflating of the cost of three times. Now, you can argue is that right or not. It does in, uh, increase the amount of investment you should put in the sense of, of the higher uh, carbon tax, but not by very much. And this is really not what's driving it, because the, uh, the, the simple argument here is, again, to say, uh, we all buy insurance. Yeah, sure. But that's because we know that we actually get our money back. Of course, nobody's actually going to give us the money back if the world burns. What we are asking for is essentially the same kind of insurance that we buy when we put more police on the street, which is a very different way of, of buying insurance. We buy some more insurance, but we don't buy all of the insurance. We don't buy all of the insurance because buying it would be too costly. Or to put it very bluntly, you don't buy an insurance when it's more expensive per year than the cost of your house. And that's the real issue that we're talking about here. And of course, remember also, all the other areas that we're talking about, HIV, malaria, malnutrition, they have huge inherent risks. I mean, it doesn't take much to make a worst case scenario of saying any one of these spinning out of control, uh, leading to failed states, development of nuclear weapons, of, 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 of bioterrorism, and you have third world war or total devastation. These are very extreme circumstances, absolutely. But if you want to do it in climate, why not everywhere else? And that's, of course, the whole problem with having that kind of argument. The last bit, yeah. no, I think we've done. OK, thanks. OK, you made two minutes. I, I feel sorry for, for Bjorn, because it is, he is getting the bulk of the, uh, the, the questions. Um, I, OK, um, I, I guess I guess the advantage of uh, cherry picking the ones I want to. There was actually one question that was specifically aimed at me. Um, and, you know, I, I probably wasn't clear enough in my presentation um, because I'm trying to say that precisely that climate change is not mutually exclusive as a choice uh, from other development needs. Indeed, it's entirely interrelated, that little quip about the roof and the walls and, and all that. Um, you know, access to sanitation, addressing poverty, water, malnutrition, vaccinations, education, family planning are essential for development. They're all likely at some stage to be undermined by climate change, in particular amongst the poorest countries. They're the ones that get the worst impacts from climate change. law. I mean, they're not responsible for the bulk of the emissions up there, but they're the first to get hit by climate impacts. They're the most agriculturally dependent, and agriculture is the most vulnerable sector, and they're the least able to adapt. And of course, unless you provide development aid, they will be even less able to adapt. So actually, um, providing these uh, flows of funds to these countries is also important to allow them to be more resilient 
to climate change. So it's all entirely interlinked. And, you know, and, I, and actually, I do believe that, that, that Beyond cares deeply about these things. But I do have to ask, you see him and hear him time after time after time talking about how you know, climate change is a waste of money and it should go into these other areas. But I don't hear you very often standing up and talking about how much more money should be spent in these pressing, in, in these pressing uh, uh, development areas. We, we it's just did a big thing for, for malnutrition. We're doing a big Copenhagen consensus for HIV AIDS. We're working with some of the biggest researchers on malaria. For absolute increases, not as a substitute yeah. to climate change, but for, okay, well yes. that's good, and, and I can only welcome that. Um, and, and it's probably because the media pick out the bits they want to hear, I, I, I will acknowledge that. Um, I won't acknowledge much else, but I will acknowledge that. Um, I, there's, there's Michael's point about um, not looking beyond 2100. Um, that's crazy when you're looking at climate change, given the cumulative effects, and especially when you look at how big the risks are out there. Now, you can discount that away and say that, well, they don't matter, they're so far out. But when the risks are non-marginal, they're irreversible, and they're potentially catastrophic, you do wonder whether we are playing our role in society in undertaking choices and decisions now, which will be consistently proved to be wrong, and in, pos in, in this sense, possibly catastrophically wrong, and whether we have a responsibility. Um, it's fine to discount future generations because they're richer. That's right. You must do that. It's not fair that we should pay uh, more uh, to, help, uh, to help generations which actually have higher living standards. Of course, when you look at the science and you look at some of the extreme probabilities, uh, what you see is that it's entirely possible that, that millions, maybe billions of people uh, will be affected in a way that renders them not that much richer. <laughs> And possibly poorer. Uh, and so very often if you discount for that reason and you apply a probabilistic approach, discounting actually makes you more liable we're, to care we're about get climate less change. rich. That undermines the whole scenario from, from all the UN climate panel. And climate change is not going to be nearly the problem you just talked about. And that was going to be my last response to the GDP oh, question, or should I not? It, no, it, it has been okay. a, a very interesting debate. It can go on forever. But I think it was a debate in the best spirit of the LOC, an open, honest, respectful exchange of uh, <laughs> ideas. So thank you very much for the applause.